Welcome back to the Lou Perez podcast. My name is Lou Perez. If you'd like to support the podcast, please head over to theluperez.locals.com and join the Lou Perez community. If you join, you'll get to listen to the podcast early. You'll get to watch my sketch comedy early, as well as experience other exclusive content. So I hope you enjoy it. And if you're looking for another way to support me, you can do so by supporting my sponsors. So if you're into cold brew, I highly recommend Black Organic Cold Brew. Head over to www.blvckbrew.com and use promo code LOU, that's L-O-U, and you'll get free shipping. And if you're into CBD products, please check out Paloma Verde, www.palomaverdestore.com. And if you use the code LOU, you'll get 25% off purchases over $75. And if you sign up for email, you'll get an extra 10% off as well. All right, here we go. very happy to be joined by Matt Thornton, the owner and operator of Straight Blast Gym. Matt, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Lou. I appreciate it. I love following you on Twitter, um, but what I really enjoyed was a recent conversation you had with uh, another martial artist named, uh, is it Rokas? Is that how you pronounce uh, Rokas? Yeah, yeah. yeah Rokas over at, yeah, and Rokas has a really great um, YouTube channel called Martial Arts Journey. And for those of you who, you know, might not be uh, familiar with that, Roka started out as a, as an Aikido um, student teacher, and then wanted to test his Aikido skills up against other martial arts. And how did he find, how did he find you? How did he make his way over to, uh... you know, I was just thinking that as you, uh, as you were saying that I was trying to remember how we came into contact, but I believe he emailed me uh, after he had the, the MMA fight with the, with a guy, I, I think so. And we began talking after that. I, I guess the uh, spoiler alert, uh, Rokas uh, ended up, I guess, giving up on Aikido and now trains uh, 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 Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and kickboxing, uh, more of a, of a mixed martial arts, uh, mixed martial arts system. And um, it was about nine minutes in and you guys started talking about Jeet Kune Do. Mm -hmm. And I was transported back to my, um, I think it was my sophomore or junior year of, of high school. And there was a kid I went to high school with named Foti, who was a, a Greek kid. And he was a big dude. And he was, uh, he was training Jeet Kune Do. And I figured, man, this guy's a badass. So, you know, Jeet Kune Do, Bruce Lee's martial art, this, this has got to be the way to go. Yeah. And uh, so I started training uh, uh, Jeet Kune Do at the, at the time. And something that I noticed was we would we would do some things that I really enjoyed that I was like, wow, this is, th this seems cool. Like we were, we would hit tie pads and we would, we would do it without gloves on. So that already seemed like, whoa, I'm a, I'm a badass hitting these thick tie pads. But then immediately after that, we would then do Wing Chun classes yeah. that I was like, but this doesn't like my, the way that I'm standing, isn't the way that I stand if I'm doing Muay Thai, you know, uh, what, what's, uh, what's going on here? So, you know, maybe you could sort of tell us a little bit about, uh, about Jeet Kune Do and, and, you know, how they came about this stuff. Sure, sure. So um, I was always fascinated by martial arts since I was a kid. And I had a very particular question um, for whatever reason that interested me. And that's what works in fights. Mm -hmm. That's, that was what motivated me. It wasn't about looking cool or <clears throat> there was no MMA, obviously when I was a kid, cause, cause I'm old, but it was just what works in a fight and what doesn't. And when I left the military, uh, I had basically decided I was going to continue boxing. I'd done a little boxing and I was going to try and box uh, maybe even professionally. But then I was also going to train Jeet Kune Do because I'd been in a few fights and I realized whether you have boxing or not, once you hit the ground, you're in trouble. I knew there was a hole there because I'd been in a few schoolyard fights where I'd been on the receiving end of mount position or a headlock. And, uh, and Jeet Kune Do talked the talk of being functional back in the day. Um, but the problem, which you just uh, articulated, was this incongruency in what they did. So you'd have functional delivery systems, as I would call them, with Muay Thai and boxing. And then they would do something that's actually, actually quite silly. And the, the problem there, a lot of people don't see the issue with that. But the problem is people then become un, unable to differentiate what works and what doesn't work. And those delivery systems don't go together. So I could, if you have really good boxing, you can you can learn Muay Thai and blend it in very easy. You can learn box, Francais, French kickboxing. 
but you're not all of a sudden going to start in a pigeon-toed stance and do Wing Chun when you have a boxing base. So, so the whole thing was kind of a mess for a whole lot of reasons of, you know, we don't need to go into it unless you want to, but that my discovery of that led me away from Jeet Kune Do and, and the timing of me figuring all that out was about the same time that I met um, and ran into Hicks and Gracie. And when I ran into Hicks and Gracie, I was like, this is, this is actually the piece that I needed. This is the piece that's been missing. And, and my life forever since has been training that. And, and by run in, I, I hope it was in a very nice way. <laughs> it was in a nice way. <laughs> and not an aggressive way. <laughs> it's, actually a, it's actually a funny story because I went to a, a seminar that a friend of mine in, in a place called Eugene, Oregon had, which is only about 90 minutes away. And um, there was only about 25 guys there, which, you know, now if Hickson decides he's going to do a seminar, you know, he's going to have to cap it because hundreds of people will show up, black belts from all over the world. But this was before anybody knew it, who he was. He hadn't fought in Japan yet. Um, I think his brother Hoist maybe just fought in UFC. It's right around that time frame. So nobody knew who he was. I walked in. I was wearing the typical Jeet Kune Do wear. So I had wrestling shoes and, uh, and you know, like a Jeet Kune Do shirt and sweatpants. And everybody else, almost everybody else was wearing a gi. They were judo black belts from a judo club that my friend had gotten to, to come in with his Jeet Kune Do students to be able to pay for his seminar. And he was wrestling with one after the other. And I was just watching. He would sit on the mat. One guy would come and then another guy would come. And after, after a few minutes, I realized he wasn't using his hands. And he was submitting all of them, but he had his hands in his belt like this. And then when he got to the end and he wrestled with all of them and, and beat them pretty much effortlessly he looked at me he's like you my big friend come over here for you i'm going to take one hand out he didn't need to but he did Took one hand out he did the same thing to me um effortlessly i mean i i didn't know anything about grappling so i figured i'm going to jump on his head and squeeze his head as hard as i can which is what i did and you know a minute later i'm in an arm bar tapping and uh, and i'm laughing because it was such an amazing experience and that's that forever forever set my course of what i was going to do for my future mm -hmm. And um, you know, for those of people listening who, have, who haven't met you, you, you are a big guy. You, are you like yeah. six, seven, six, eight, something like that? Yeah, I'm six, eight. And now I'm, now I'm much bigger, about 280. But even at the time, I was probably 225. Mm -hmm. um, maybe 190. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, it's, uh, uh, this might be a weird question, but, you know, how, how was it, you know, navigating martial arts as a big guy? Um, you know, sort of like, like when, you know, when, when you train, especially with, with, with smaller people, yeah. um, making sure that you're not just using, you know, your gorilla strength and, and, sure. and whatnot. Sure. Well, you know, that's not always been easy and I haven't always been the best at that for sure. It's a, that's a, a, a growth curve. It took me a while to figure out, um, well, let's back up for a second. In the beginning, if you don't know anything about Brazilian jiu-jitsu, the size doesn't really do that much for you. Um, that, that is the beauty of an effective delivery system like uh, BJJ. But um, so, so I'd have younger, smaller, 135, 150-pound people tapping me out all the time. And, you know, and, and that in and of itself was amazing to me. But then as you start to go and you start to train more and more, you realize that the less you use strength, the faster you're going to get better at technique. Uh, the, the safer it is for your body, um, the, the, the steeper your learning curve becomes. It only took me about 25 years to figure that part out. <laughs> I think, I, think um, I really started to understand that and appreciate that probably about the time of a, I got my black belt, which was, I think, uh, 19 years ago. So it took me a while. But everybody, when you come to, to functional martial arts, is going to have good things and bad things as it relates to height or strength or size or previous injuries. And, and you're going to have advantages and disadvantages and, and through a live training, your body figures out how to operate best. So in my, in my training with, uh, with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, I've had a number of times where guys uh, whoever old with have, have said to me, boy, you're strong. <laughs> and it's like, and then I, I, you know, at first, at first I was like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm strong. But then after a while, after a while, I found out it's kind of code for you're kind of being a dick. And, 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 you know, work on your technique, dude, you know, instead of like trying to squeeze my, you know, my, my head off of my, uh, uh, off of my neck, um, yeah, going back to, to JKD, uh, you know, I'm a, what am I, I'm like a 15 year old, 16 year old kid. 
And I remember one time uh, I was holding pads for a guy who was probably in his forties mm -hmm. and, you know, was, you know, holding the pads for him. He's, you know, doing jab cross and stuff like that. And I did one of these things where I just kind of, uh, I, I put the pads on my chest and I kind of like, like leaned forward with my head mm -hmm. and this fucking guy, I poked me. I'm, I'm, I'm holding pads for this guy. And he put a, and he luckily he didn't get me like right in the eye, but he got me like right next to it. And it was sort of like, what are we doing here? What, what right. you know, what is, what is this about? Um, was that a student or an instructor? A student. Yeah. He, he was a student. I think he, he was a, a higher, higher rank or, or whatever, but it was, it was a very stupid move. Um, right. And uh you know, in, in martial arts, I, I often hear, uh, it seems like for a lot of people, the go-to when it comes to discussing jujitsu is, well, you know, you put me in this move, I'll just poke out your eye or I'll, I'll bite you right. or I'll pull your hair. And right. um, what is, what, what's your response to the, you know, the uh, invincible weapon of the eye poke? Yeah. Um, so the difference is I can do that too. You know, everybody can do that. I can, if you're going to reach for my eyes, I can reach for your eyes. I'll tell you a funny story. I was teaching a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu seminar in Los Angeles probably, gosh, it was probably 20 years ago. And there, there was a, a, fa a, a relatively well-known famous martial arts instructor who was watch, sitting from the sidelines watching my seminar. I won't say who he is, but uh, he was sitting there. He was polite. He was watching everything I did. And I was teaching knee riding, which for people who don't know, you're sitting with one knee on the body and you can punch and do submissions. And about halfway through the, the seminar, he's like, yeah, come over here. I got a question for you. I'm like, okay. And he's like, take that position on me. And I put my knee on him and, and he reaches over. He's going to grab my groin. And he's like, well, what do, what do you do if you do this? And I said, well, you know, and then I just <laughs> gently pushed my, my fist down into his face and said, I'd be doing that because I'm on top. And he goes, oh, okay. Like that was a revelation to him. Yeah. <laughs> the thing I like about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and the thing I try to explain to people about it is, um, you're not winning confrontations. You're not winning physical altercations because of pain. Pain is the least reliable thing that, that you can have in a fight. When, when people are, have controlled substances in their body or they're even they're just adrenaline is going, you know, you can do all kinds of, of terrible trauma to their body and, and they'll continue. But with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, we're actually physically controlling their body and then gently putting them to sleep if you want to. But I mean, I, whoever's, the the jujitsu the practitioner is going to be in control of where that fight goes the space that's allowed the, uh, the position that's allowed and that that's everything in a fight you know and that allows you to control it without hurting them instead of every time you know your drunk uncle comes over you got to eye jab him or kick him in the, in the balls yeah yeah and i think we we've been seeing a lot of this with um especially when it comes to police and it becomes so apparent when police are trying to apprehend somebody or, you know, take somebody into custody, it becomes apparent whether or not they have any ground experience whatsoever. And I know um, people like, like Henrik Gracie um, has been leading a lot of uh, uh, the, the whole like Gracie, uh, Gracie Academy has a lot to do with um, training law enforcement to be able to, to handle people. And, and it's, it, 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 it's almost hard to explain to people like, like, no, you, you would want a police officer to be able to, um, do anything other than punch you in the face and anything that having to strike you, you want them to have those, uh, those, those skills. Yeah. 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 No, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is the perfect art for law enforcement. Um, when all this stuff started happening, you know, the answer to me was very obvious from the beginning. It's more training. The answer is always more training. So, you know, unless you're dealing with a bad officer and you have issues with the union and you have to figure out how to fire the guy, Outside of those circumstances, the answer for all of this is always more training. And the problem and the, the really sad part about what's happened now. So here in Portland right now, we have about a third of the officers that we should have for the city. And shootings since January at the beginning of the year are up over 1,500%. And so just this last weekend here in Portland, I think two days ago, one night, there was nine shootings. Nine shootings. And... And in a situation like that, who's going to get training? Every officer that they have needs to be on the street just, just to be able to try and mitigate some of the out-of-control violence that's happening now. I know you guys are experiencing similar things in, in New York. And the first thing that gets cut when people start cutting these budgets is training. So, so we're actually going backwards 
um, we're moving into a situation where law enforcement is going to have less options and you're going to have more inexperienced officers with less training on the street than you have now, which is sad to see, but that's, that's the reality of what's actually happening. So I'm an outsider. I'm not, I'm not in Portland, right? So the only thing that I do, that I do see are, uh, you know, buildings burning Mm -hmm. and hearing about, uh, shootings and, and, and stuff like that. Is it, are these happening in contained areas or is this, is it sort of like happening all over the place? Yeah, so you have a couple couple different things going on that aren't necessarily related. The first one is the out-of-control crime. The out-of-control crime happened in Portland uh, about the same time it happened everywhere, and that was due to, you know, what, what Heather McDonald calls the Ferguson effect. There's just, when pressure's put on law enforcement the way it's, the way it's been put now, the first thing they stop doing is proactive policing. So here in Portland, for example, we had what's called the gun violence response team which was the renamed gang task force. And for about the last 10 years, they've kept a a lid on all the gang shootings, gang related shootings in Portland and done a pretty good job. We have a city councilwoman who decided that they were, that the gang, the gun violence response team was racist because they spend over 60% of their time in the black community. Whereas I think uh, the Portland population is less than 10% African-American. So therefore racist. So she, she got the gun violence response team cut. Um, the budgets for the police have been cut. Like I was saying, we have about a third the amount of officers we need now. And guess what happened? Mm. Gang-related shootings shot through the roof. So, um, and the majority of the victims tend to be African-American. The, the newspaper tries not to even report that because they don't want that to be known. But my question for the councilwoman, which I've asked her before, is if 65 or 70% of the victims Victims of these shootings are African American. Um, what percentage of time, police time, do those victims deserve? You know, do they deserve eight percent of of police uh, attention? The the victims of the and the families of, of victims of those homicides because African Americans are eight percent of the city's population. Is that how much they should get? It's just madness. So, so you have that. Sorry, but this you know this is an issue that's been driving me crazy for a while. And then uh, you have the anarchists and the anarchists are basically Antifa and they riot, you know, I think the last eight days we've had six, six events, six nights in a row in the last eight days. And what they do is they'll target different neighborhoods, break windows. They'll start with what they call a march, which is their protest. And then as some people march through the streets, others will break off. So when you see their flyers, they say, be like water. It's what they mean is break off and come back. They'll break off and break windows, try and light fires, you know, just basically damage property, beat someone up if they can catch them alone. And then um, usually they target a police station or a federal building. So the federal courthouse or the ICE building that's downtown Portland will be targeted. The problem with is, is these tend to be surrounded by their residential areas too. So you have people that live right next door that have to put up with it. But I can't, I've lost track of how many times they've tried to light my local um, dep- uh, there's a police station about 10 blocks from here. I've, lo- I've lost track how many times they've tried to burn that building down. They wow. basically just stopped painting it. It's just black charcoal up the side of the building now. But those are two somewhat unrelated problems. One's a lot easier to fix than the other one right now. But that's, that's essentially what you have going on in Portland. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, uh, a while back I tweeted something out that said, you know, all of the people, you know, calling for violence or, you know, actually engaging in violence need to be careful because one day men who are very good at violence will answer the call. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're somebody, um, you know, with military experience, you're, you've been in, you know, martial arts for seeming like, like basically like your whole life. It it, it seems like you're a man who, who knows violence and what, what's going to happen? I mean, what's the, what's the, the end game here? You know, how to, what's going to happen to a city like, like Portland, should this stuff continue? Yeah. Yeah. The end game, uh, unfortunately, I think is pretty easy to, to play out. So, you know, I'm myself and, and other, I'm not going to, 
you know, be a vigilante and, and risk my business. And mm-hmm. you'll see people sometimes are like, why don't you guys get together and do something about it? Well, you know, the district attorney here who is um, very much, an, if, if he's not Antifa himself, he's at least an Antifa, Antifa sympathizer, would love to put me in jail. He, you know, one business owner comes out of their property when the Antifa creeps are, are spray painting it and breaking windows and tries to defend it. And that guy's going to be the one that goes to jail. So first of all, we have that. So what's going to happen is this is just going to continue nightly. It's been more than a year now. It's not going to stop until eventually the citizens get so fed up with it that um, they demand prosecution. And one of them or two of them actually wind up having to spend two or three weeks in jail in general population, because these are for the most part, um, spoiled kids you know one of them that's been arrested half a dozen times is a student at reed college which is a very expensive university here in portland and he's not going to survive in jail so the moment one of them gets prosecuted the rest of them will start to just fade away because these aren't you know we're not dealing with hardcore gang members or anything like that these are spoiled kids who who are allowed to dress in black and basically live action role play because our prosecu- our, our district attorney won't do anything about it. That's essentially what's going on. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. The, the people you describe saying, Hey, why don't you, you know, get together with a few of your uh, jujitsu buddies and make it happen yeah. for one, you, you know, you're six foot eight. So you're going to be pretty, you're going to be pretty easy to spot. I don't know how many other than the, the Portland trailblazers. I don't know how many six foot eight dudes are, are walking around Portland. Uh, but also it's like, you know, this isn't, you know the the plot to some 80s movie where it's like you know the gang is taken over and uh and the vigilantes you know have to uh have to step up and and also you're put in this you're put in this in this terrible position where you know like you you know like you said if the business owner comes out to defend himself the one thing he can rely on is that he won't be prosecuted for it um and i i had a i had a sort of a, a something that happened recently a problem with uh with a neighbor that i've had in in my uh my building in in brooklyn where the guy followed me from the elevator to my apartment and the reason uh, the reason why is because i I wasn't wearing a mask inside uh inside the building um and uh, this guy i've had a problem with uh before he actually this dude has a history of yeah, he actually attacked another neighbor last year for not wearing a mask outside. It's in- insane, right? And, uh, you know, this guy, you know, followed me um, and was yelling about, you know, where is your mask? Put your mask on and all that. And I responded with, you know, basically saying the worst things you possibly can say to a man, you know, oh. to him. And there were a number of times when it, th- this took this took a while. And there were a number of times when I said, do you want to fight me? Like, what are you doing? Right. What, what's, you know, what's going on here? And at no point did I think legally was I in, the, would I be protected had I laid hands on the guy, sure. you know? But it's one of these things where you have these people who are sort of taking advantage of the law, you know, like they're going to step up to this point and they're not going to cross this line because they know that they're, that they're protected. Um, and it's really unfortunate for people with, with a lot to lose, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm the last two weeks have been basically leaving, uh, New York to move to, uh, uh, to the suburbs. And one of the last days I got to deal with this douchebag and it's, right. and all my friends, my friends telling me, don't get arrested, you know, don't, you know, don't assault the gun. I'm like, I don't want, I don't want any of that. You know, right. I have a house, I have a family. Right. Um, and then when you have people with nothing to lose, that's, I guess yes. that's what you deal with. Exactly. The other thing people have to realize is groups like Antifa in particular are very good at, at setting up situations. That's the one thing that they're good at. So what they do is they intentionally provoke people until they, they lash out. And, and once they lash out, they film that part of it. And then, you know, they'll swarm in and try and beat the guy, you know, 10 to one. But they always have the cameras going and they're always going to film that part of it. So, you know, you have to be really careful yeah. because that they're actually looking to set up people like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and it, and it just so happens this guy was, uh, was filming me uh, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, gonna- not, not during the whole thing, not, no, not no. during, not during the whole, the whole part, but at, at various stages. Yeah. He yeah. was, uh, 
he was he was filming me uh, for sure. Um, with uh, something that that uh, that I, I think I I talked to you about over over Twitter, um, something that I've been noticing with um, uh, in particular this guy uh, Jake Paul, who um, is I guess a, a YouTuber who's um, been training boxing for a little while, and he's been you know calling out. Uh, other fighters and uh, doing it in a, in a rather uh, rather disrespectful uh, manner. And yeah. um, uh, over the years, me as being a fan of of mixed martial arts and also uh, training, you know, some Brazilian jiu-jitsu, um, I've uh, I, I hold a lot of the mixed martial artists in very high regard. Um, and in particular, some of the guys that that he was calling out. Yeah. Um, and something that I noticed is that all of the callouts that he has. It's to guys like Conor McGregor, or I guess now Daniel Cormier, uh, mm-hmm. to come and box him, mm-hmm. as opposed to come and fight him. Right. Um, which you know, uh, as we all know, boxing is amazing sport, but it's a sport of punches as opposed to a sport of, you know, you can get dunked on your head, right. and then kicked in the face with a so- with a with a soccer kick. Um, what, what what do you make of of I guess this recent phenomenon? <laughs> Yeah, I haven't seen that particular uh, tweet or, or, but I've, you know, this is something that's been going on ever since we've had social media. So Connor gets called out all the time by all kinds of people. This guy might want to be careful with even with just boxing with, with Connor. But of course, none of those guys want, they, they have nothing to gain. They have no reason to even engage with somebody like that. And it makes me wonder sometimes too um, whether social media is something that actually, adds to people's mental illness you know it's certainly not it's not a healthy thing and i'm sure that guy's getting off on the attention that he gets from this kind of circumstance which is where else would that happen absent social media i don't mm-hmm. you know he'd be he'd be in the street corner some back in the day having to stand he'd be that guy that's standing on the street corner that yells at people when they walk by right you know if we didn't have that medium so yeah that there's something about about social media that uh it's almost like if if I'm able to slide into your DMs, then mm-hmm. somehow I'm on the same level as you. So, right. um, so I, I've had I've had experiences in the past on Twitter that blow me away. In that um, it was some years back, and um, there was the movie Straight Outta Compton that was uh, that came out, and it was about the um, uh, NWA, the the rap group, uh, and uh, who made a cameo in it, but Tyron Woodley, um, a you know. UFC welterweight uh, fighter and uh, he was a part and the scene that he was in he was a part of a crew that had a fight with um, I guess Ice Cube's uh, crew and um, I tweeted out a joke and said you know it was really great to see Tyron Woodley in that scene but um, you know if, if you watch the scene it's pretty clear he still needs to work on his cardio which at the time at the time was was a dig on Tyron Woodley, who was told that he didn't have you know a gas tank and all that. Right. And who responds to my tweet, but the Tyron Woodley, wow. who's who said the first tweet was you know why is it ever you know it was, it was something along the lines of no matter what you do you're always gonna have people hating on you, and then the second one was a joke you know, that was a joke that he made. He's like yeah, but at least I wasn't the guy who got thrown off the escalator, right? So he was, he was coming, you know, he was coming at it uh, as a joke. And I responded to him. I'm like, I'm like, dude, it's insane. Like I have such, you know, I respect you so much as a fighter. It's insane that I could put out something like a stupid joke and have you see it. Can't wait to, I can't wait to watch you fight again. You know? Yeah. And you know, so, so we live in a world where, where uh, me, you know, a white belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu can make a joke about a high-level future, uh, you know, champion, right? Yeah. And they can actually see it. It's yeah. it, it, it's it's extraordinary. Um, yeah, it is. And I think I, I made a joke about Cormier. So it was Cormier and um, uh, who was he fighting? Uh, Anthony Rumble Johnson. And I just mm-hmm. put something out where I'm like, "Can't you guys settle this without violence?" <laughs> and he responded to that as you know the, the joke that it was and it's just it's yeah. uh it's pretty unbelievable just the 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 times that we're that we're living in where we were able to uh um to, to do that yeah. um a uh, something that i've also noticed with with social media i put a i put something out this is so self-referent uh referential everything that i'm, I'm talking to you about um uh 
I made a joke basically about how uh, Kung Fu only works in the Matrix, in the movie The Matrix. True. And, and man, did I get some hate from Kung, <laughs> some Kung Fu stands coming at me uh, yeah. and all that. And so, you know, maybe we, we could talk a little bit about, you know, quote unquote, traditional martial arts and yeah. the positives and the negatives um, uh, about them as, as, as you see it. Sure. So going back to, to what got me interested in martial arts is I was interested in what works and what doesn't work in fighting. And the one, you know, one of the positive things I'll say about my years of doing Jeet Kune Do, because I did teach it for a while as well, is I got exposed to all these different Jeet Kune Do instructors and all these different kinds of martial arts. So that was, that was good. So I got to see a lot of different systems. And over time, I started to realize that what makes something work, what makes martial arts style work, because those kind of questions, especially pre-UFC, like what Wing Chun versus Shotokan Karate or this and that, you know, it's like it's, who would win in a fight, a bear or a tiger, like those kind of questions just ubiquitous. And I realized it's the training method. So it's not the technique, but it's how the arts train. And one thing that all functional martial arts tend to have in common is their sports. And because they're sports, the outcome matters. And because the outcome matters, they use an opponent process. So they use a live form of training and they test it. They have, they have a, a feedback mechanism, which is, you know, you get tapped out or you get hit. And from that, you can, you can learn and actually develop real timing. And that's what makes martial arts functional. It's what I basically call aliveness. So one word can kind of sum it up. And when I say aliveness, I don't necessarily mean sparring or pressure testing. I mean, the arts are taught in such a way that as you're learning the the, the techniques, which are activity specific, they're not techniques you have to change. Like you, you practice the punch this way, but in a real fight, you have to punch this way. No, you practice the way you would against an aggressive resisting opponent, the techniques that you would do with a sense of timing. It doesn't have to be rough, but it doesn't have to be full contact, but there's always timing. Just like we can, you and I can roll and train in jujitsu in a very gentle way, but it's still alive. And so that was, to me, that was the important message that, that I wanted to get out. And the first 10 years of my, my martial arts career is basically just me talking about aliveness. I released a video set on that subject in, uh, I think it was, uh, gosh, I don't know, very early 90s, maybe 1990. And um, no, it would have been a little after that, 93, somewhere there. Anyway, that subjected me to which i'm which is i'm perfectly fine with but 10 years of having traditional martial arts write me uh hate email and call the gym and leave voicemails or threatening to come kill me and all that kind of stuff so you know when you talk about when i'm talking about martial arts systems i i'm talking about a system i'm not talking about people even when i talk about jeet kune do i'm not i'm not trying to put down dan and asano or anybody else i'm just talking honestly about the training methods, because I've always thought that if we don't talk honestly about the training methods, you can't improve them. And the problem with martial arts and with many things is people get attached to those training methods and it becomes a form of identity. And then they feel like you're attacking them. So you're saying my Kung Fu doesn't work. It becomes a personal insult. And then you have to unwind all that. That going back to what you mentioned about Rokus, one of the things that was what impressed me about Rokus, number one, he tested what he was doing, which showed me that he had a sincere desire to know the truth, which is admirable and to some degree rare. But number two, once that reality had hit home, he decided to let go of all that stuff and he went to school. That's how he put food on the table was teaching Aikido and he let it go to pursue truth. And I find that really admirable and extremely rare and, um, and healthy. So I think it's been great for Rokas and it launched a whole new career for, for him. But so many other traditional martial artists or people will, will either not have those encounters because they don't really want to know the truth. And then they have to spend the rest of their life dodging and, and defending this kind of fake um, authority. Or they'll have one of those come to Jesus moments where they, they get to meet a Hicks and Gracie or get in a ring with a boxer. And rather than actually change course, they just double down on the, on the bad training methods. And I've never found that to be a healthy thing for human beings to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some of my, some of the videos that I, I, I still absolutely love watching are the early 
um, Gracie challenge videos. Um, yeah. And I forget who narrates. Um, Orion. Horian narrates them. Yeah. And man, if you if you watch some of these things, I mean, you have you have Horian narrating and saying basically all those years of training mean yes. absolutely nothing. Yes. It's almost, it's, it's almost like, I, I, I don't know how to, how to explain it. It's, I guess it's, it, it, it's almost like you, you've been dating this person for 10 years yeah. and it turns out they're not the person that they say they are that, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's so crushing, you know, to hear him yeah. narrate that and to watch this person flail, or as I guess Sam Harris described it, like drowned, yeah. uh, you know, you know. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's really wild. And, and when I, uh, <laughs> did you ever, when you were receiving hate from like the traditional martial artists, I just imagine like, uh, you receiving a picture of your face on a makiwara and like a dude saying, I'm going to smash I think you I've up. actually gotten that before. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. You gotta, you gotta hang that up. Yeah. Um, and when, uh, what, what I found in my, in my recent, um, in my recent online war, uh, against the Kung Fu stands, uh, one of one of the arguments that the guy made was, well, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu won't uh, help you against multiple attackers, and it's like, yeah. how do it's like, uh, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, three or four guys, I guess it would be, be pretty difficult any art form to be able to handle, though. Yeah, um, yeah, Horian has a very good answer to that, which is, could you fight more than one of yourself? You know, there's there's something really egotistical about the question. It's like, as, as if you could fight three or four people, right? Could I fight two of me? No. The the thing people have to remember about fighting. So for the longest time, the main criticism you'll get against uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or really any combat sport, the first one is, well, that's a sport in the street. It's different. Yeah, yeah. No mm -hmm. And in that one, I just explain to people that there's no magical street technique. There's no street mount. You know, it's, it's the same positions. Um on the on the pavement as it is on the mat and uh and so if you're skilled in those core delivery systems uh just like it's the same punch if you punch somebody in the face in the street it doesn't magically change from the ring if you're skilled in those delivery systems you're going to be skilled wherever nobody nobody would want to exchange punches with mike tyson in the street right. you know, just because it's a sport and then the second one is well what about multiple opponents and you know there is no art that's going to let you uh, deal with multiple opponents effectively but the thing people need to remember is it's a fight and then the very nature of a fight is you don't get to choose where you're going to be sometimes you know mm -hmm. you may when the the more people there are the more likely it is you're going to wind up on the ground one of my one of our sbg black belts paul sharp was actually a undercover um guy for a long time and worked in worked in the gang task force and he had a gang come to kill him at his house so they showed up while he was it was um middle of winter there was ice everywhere he's in chicago it's super cold he's bringing groceries from the car into his house his wife and kids are inside the house and i, I forget how many he said initially but i think it was four or five of them show up with a pit bull and they they attack him at the door of his car and release the pit bull on him jesus the first thing that happens because this icy is he winds up falling and he's on the ground underneath the car and what saved him was his Brazilian jiu-jitsu because he was able to, to actually control and put the other guy bet between the dog and him and hold that guy on the ground and position himself in such a way that they couldn't get to him. And then I guess what happened was the dog, who probably, which they probably hadn't treated very well, turned on them, <laughs> um, at which point he got back to his feet and, and, they, and ended up in the fight. But, you know, it was his ability to control position and space on the ground that that helped him there there would there's you know what martial art is going to going to give you the magical the magical pill to solve that problem there it just doesn't exist yeah yeah and um when it comes when it comes to uh you know you training uh you know, training people and, and rolling with people so something that that i that i discovered and i think i'm definitely not the first person to to say this but you you learn a lot about yourself when you're put into that situation, if you are even, even you know, rolling and, and, and that sort of thing. And uh, a, a few years ago, I, I was uh, training with, uh, with, my, with my coach and he had to tell me that a lot of guys didn't want to roll with me. And the re and, and I said, why, why, why don't they want to want to roll with me? And he's like, um, 
he's like, they were, they were afraid I was going to hurt them. And, 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 and what I mean by, by hurt them is he's like, there's a look that comes on your face, Lou, that you don't, that you don't realize where it's sort of like, I'm taking things out in the rolling mm -hmm. that problems that I'm having in life, whether it's stress or shit that I'm dealing with, it's coming out. And I'm like, but I'm a nice guy. Like I, I wouldn't want to hurt any of these people, but it's coming out. And, uh, it was, it was really difficult. It, it was, it was tough to be told that by, you know, someone I, I you know, I respect, I, I, I love the guy where it's like, wow, I really have to work on, on this, on this stuff if I want to be a good partner, but also if I just want to be able to control what I'm doing, you know, yes. and, and, and control and control myself. Yeah. That's super common. Yeah. Super common. And, and uh, you know, yeah, it, it's good that you have a coach that's willing to sit down and have a conversation with you and tell you about that. Yeah. Because very often um, they won't. And then it's basically left to play out on the mat. Over time, you kind of figure it out yourself, but he really helps you, you know, get a steep learning curve again by, by giving you a heads up on that. But I, I see that all the time. It's very normal. Yeah. You know, very normal thing. Brazilian jiu-jitsu and functional martial arts in general, but especially jiu-jitsu. And the reason with jiu-jitsu is because you can spar the way you were there um, multiple times a week. You can't do that with MMA. You can't, right. you know, judo is hard. You get the falls. Wrestling's rough. But jiu-jitsu of all functional martial arts is the most gentle. And so you can train in a very realistic fashion, you know, over and over again every week. And that process reveals things to yourself and to other people and about your character about your how you perform on in stressful situations about whether or not you can remain comfortable in stressful situations and those kind of things are priceless you know priceless yeah. information that you you get to uh feedback about yourself that way yeah yeah i i uh i, I spoke about this with uh with my therapist a while a while ago where i was trying to i was trying to describe it so i was rolling with with my coach and he had me, he had my back for, I think like it was a good 10 minutes or so. And I wasn't allowing him to, you know, uh, you know, to get the tap, if you will. You know, I was doing a, I was doing a good job um, defending it. Right. But it was like 10 minutes, you know, it, it was kind of like a, you know, a, a pain in the ass. And um, I was going over this because he and I had this discussion, you know, shortly thereafter. And I was trying to describe it to my, you know, to my therapist. And I said, I don't care about winning. I just don't want to lose. Right. And what That's I was, good. you know, and, and I was taking something that was outside of the, you know, the, the school and bringing it in there. I didn't want to lose a lot of other stuff that, that was going on. Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to grow if I'm not prepared to lose, you know, to allow, right. hey, he's got me. Let's, you know, let's, let's, let's start it again. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, two things there. First thing is you articulated Hickson Gracie's version of jujitsu. So, you know, Hickson would often say, um, you know, you, you can't always win, but you never have to lose. And so for him, winning is about survival, which that, that came from his dad. Elio's original version was if you just survive, yeah. uh, you win. And so there's a actual I think a great deal of value in, in, in just training that way and, and training and focusing on survival. So number one, I think that's good, but the flip side, like you said, is in order to grow, you have to put yourself in vulnerable positions. It's just necessary. And so, um, you know, you have to have to allow other people to get into certain places so you can work from there. That's an important part of jujitsu. And if, if you're not failing, sometimes you're doing it wrong because failure is an essential part of the process. It's not just okay it's a necessary ingredient in getting better. So there's a, you know, a balance there, but I think training overall to survive, I think is fantastic. And um, uh, I, I think the first time that I, that I ever came across your stuff, it was years and years ago. And it was through, um, through, I think we call it probably like the new atheists or the, the skeptics movement. And um, how did uh how did you get into that? And uh, was that an influence on, you know, your martial arts journey? As well? Yeah. Uh, so um, I'm going to do the long and short, but I'm going to give you the short version of this. <clears throat> I went, I had um, some unusual experiences 
all my life, but in particular, right, right around the time I turned 30. Some of them were drug-induced and some of them were not. So some of them evolved hallucinogenics and a couple of them didn't. But, you know, they, they made me question reality and the nature of reality and everything else. And for the better part of, I would say, almost 10 years, I went deep into um, Buddhism and things like that, but in particular, a certain branch of Hinduism to try and find answers to, and other things, but what I was trying to do was find answers to what I what I'd experienced. And I realized actually in hindsight <clears throat> on a couple of different occasions, which were, you know, those, those rough nights when you look back and you realize, you know, you maybe you hadn't been acting so well, but you didn't, you didn't figure it out until later, which I've had many of those experiences that I was, I was probably at my most selfish during that time. You know, I was, I was thinking about all these, um, what I'd consider profound experiences, but in reality, my behavior, you know, I wasn't treating people kindly. I wasn't focusing on my kids and my relationships the way I should have. And so there was a disconnect there. It was right about the time that I was, I was figuring that out that I read Sam Harris's book, The End of Faith. And that, I really love that book. Um, Sam's writing and argument, I think was absolutely clear. He won me over with the argument, but also I felt like he understood what I, what I was talking about. Like I, it was a, I could have a conversation with him about some of those experiences and it wouldn't be, you know, a woo-woo conversation. And so that led me, that's what led me into the new atheist. And I wrote Sam actually sometime after that, we, we started talking and, and communicating on a, on a regular basis after that. And sure enough, he understood exactly what I was talking about. But the thrust of his main argument that got me was, you know, you can't pretend to know things you don't know. So, so my answer to those things that had happened in the past and I experienced is, if you ask me, it's like, I don't know. You know, I'm not going to pretend I, I know what all that means. I don't know the answer to that. And, and that, that was very powerful because it, that tied back into my martial arts. You know, when you have the Aikido guy we're talking about who has the experience and unlike Rokas, he doesn't let it go. What he's doing after that is he's pretending to know things he doesn't know. And he may even know he's pretending, which makes it even worse. But I saw that for that brief flirtation of years I had, you know, and kind of for lack of a better term, the new age community, I saw so much of that. I saw so many people with this pretense to knowledge and they, and in reality, they, they had no idea. And so, yes. Yeah, so after that, I had four or five years where I had, I'd really concluded that the major problem is people pretending to know things they don't know. And along those lines is religion. You can't get a better example of pretending to know things you don't know than religion. So I really set my sights on, on religion. And, and uh, what happened was after spending a couple of years in the atheist community, I realized, you know, I don't like a lot of these people. I don't enjoy spending time with them. And that was about the same time that it started to convert into a really kind of heavy far left social justice warrior type thing. And um, I was just like, I, I had more in common in terms of values and I enjoyed talking to conservative Christians I would argue with about these topics. I enjoy spending time with them more than I did these, you know, far left atheists. And, and that's about the time when I kind of dropped out of that movement. And my, one of my friends is also one of my students, Peter Bogosian. Mm -hmm. I, I think his experiences mimic mine. You know, you just get to a certain point where you realize, you know, these, a lot of these people just really aren't good people. So, you know, once again, it's not about it comes down to how you treat people. It's not about what you, what you know or don't know. Yeah. I had a, uh, I had a, I, I think I came to the new atheists in a, in a very similar way. I, um, when I was younger, I used to, I had a habit of taking naps, naps during parties. So if there was a barbecue and it's like, where's Lou? He's in the basement taking a nap, uh, not drug induced naps, just, you know, just, just, just naps. And, uh, yeah, it was at my brother's house in Westchester and I went down in the basement and the TV was on and what was on, but book TV and who was speaking, but, uh, this guy who kind of looked like, um, who did he look like? Uh, well, now I'm forgetting his, now I'm forgetting his name. Wait, wait, wait. 
it turned out it was it was Sam Harris. Yeah. And his book that was out was the the end of faith. And mm-hmm. he was talking and I'm like, how is it possible that this guy who I've never met and never heard of is saying exactly what I'm thinking, mm-hmm. but you know, but saying it in, in such a, you know, a much clearer way. Or it's like, you know what, I wish I could take the words that he was saying and have them come, uh, come out of my mouth. So you're reading the end of, um, uh, uh, the end of faith and then, uh, a letter to a Christian nation. And then obviously at that time was, it was very, it was a very interesting time too, because there was, uh, I would describe it. Uh, there was, um, there wasn't that, I, I wouldn't describe it as tension between atheists and, and theists. There were so many debates happening. There were so yeah. many gatherings, uh, Christopher Hitchens against Dinesh D'Souza, Dinesh D'Souza against Sam Harris, um, you know, all over. It, it seemed like there was a lot more communication at the time on that subject than than you would expect. It's almost like we were, it, it was a completely different era. Um, yes, yeah. it really was. In many ways, it feels like we went backwards. That was incredibly healthy time. You had people having what would normally be difficult conversations but that kind of goes back to what I was saying before. You you could, a lot of those people, well, you, you may not, I may not, or Sam may not agree with them about, you know, the nature of reality and, and the origins of life on the planet or whatever it is, you could converse with them. Yeah. They would argue in good faith with you. They would, they would honestly, in many cases, tell you what they actually believed and then state their points for it. And then afterwards, everybody could go out and have a drink and and it would be good. And that was such a very different dynamic from what goes on now. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it seems like, uh, I mean, if you can, if you can discuss, you know, the, the nature of the universe, the existence or non-existence of God, I mean, you can't get much higher than that. You know, no. I mean, that, that, that is, you know, uh, you know, the, the biggest topic, the idea that we can't discuss, you know, or we can't debate whether or not, you know, uh, the value of critical race theory or mm-hmm. anti-racism or mm-hmm. whether or not the, the founding of the United States uh, has slavery in its DNA or, you know, right. it's, it, I, I, I often, I, I feel like a throwback to an era, a far, a bygone era that isn't that far away, that, that isn't that long ago where right. for, for me, um, what, what I think the skeptics movement did was it, it opened up um the idea that you can talk about anything and you can yes. argue about anything and that there aren't any limits on, on what you could, uh, on what you can discuss. Yeah. And I, you know, I think in hindsight, it's pretty easy to see that the people that we're talking about that we both respect, like Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and um, even Daniel Dennett and all of them, they're all, I would say, true liberals in you know, such a cliche now, but in the classical sense of the word, they're classical liberals that actually would, stand up for free speech think about you know i i remember watching a a lecture um christopher hitchens gave at a synagogue on why it's important to allow holocaust deniers to speak you know which which takes balls and he was articulate and sincere and took questions afterwards and you know that's a true liberal and i think you know what viscerally, I, I just felt like I don't like these people, but vi- but viscerally, that that was my feeling. But in reality, what was going on is a lot of the other people were not actually liberals. So you had a, a great deal of people who were essentially authoritarians in that group, you know, kind of masked as liberals. And I think that that unfortunately they've taken over most of those institutions now. Mm-hmm. And you know, as he as he looked to the future, so I'm. Uh... I'm a, I'm a new dad. My, my son is, uh, he just turned one uh, a month ago and we have a, another one on the way. I do out, do out. Um, the release is going to, is scheduled for October of, right, of this so year. You're, <laughs> thank you. You're, you're a father yourself and, um, five. and you have five, five kids. Yeah. No way. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm one of five, uh, actually. So, wow. Five. Yeah, kids. I'm trying to talk my wife out of not have out of having a sixth right now. So we'll see. And your wife is game. Your wife is like, she wants to have another baby for sure. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, congrats, congratulations to, to you too. Well, what are the, what are the, what's the age range? Well, I have uh, I had a previous marriage. So I have two okay. boys Okay. from my previous marriage, uh, Liam and Hunter. They're both in their twenties. 
okay. um, and, do, and doing their own thing, living their life. And then I have three little ones at home. So I have a, a daughter who's 11. I always get the ages wrong. Uh, eight, another daughter who's eight. And then I have my uh, three-year-old. Three-year-old. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Um, that, that, that's, uh, that's amazing. So when, when I have the opportunity to talk to dads, especially, you know, uh, seasoned veterans uh, who've been in the game, um, you know, how has, has fatherhood changed, you know, the way that you look at, uh, martial arts, the universe, you know, mm-hmm. how, how, what's it, what's it done to you? Yeah, that, that's that and my wife are probably the biggest factors in, in any kind of, uh, actual growing up and maturity that I've experienced. But I, I had the, the ability to do it twice. You know, I had, I raised the boys when they were young and, and I realized that at the time I wasn't around a whole lot and I wasn't around, not because I, you know, I was, wasn't with their mom or, or off screwing around, but I was just working, you know, I was trying to build my business and, and I was, I had no employees and I was the only one. And, you know, so I was doing whatever the 80 hour week job, you know, trying to build my, my company. And in the process, I missed, you know, the boys through that, those early years and you can't get that back. So when my wife said she wanted to have babies and we had Annika, my, my daughter on the way, I realized I don't want to do that again. I want to be around. So number one, it motivated me to be a little smarter about business and a little smarter with my finances so that I could actually manage my time and and be home, which I've done. So that that's been good. Um, and that, affects everything. So with martial arts, my only, my only goal of 52, at the, to be honest, at this age is to be able to continue to roll. That's all I care about. So I want to be able to roll with my grandkids in my eighties. I want to roll till the day I die. I know I'm not going to be happy if I can't roll wrestle on the mat. So everything I do in terms of fitness and diet, anything that I do like that, it's motivated by the desire to be able to always roll. Um, and my kids have played a role in that too. You know, I realized that that's the most, that's the most important thing for me by far when it comes to jujitsu, you know, so that those would probably be the major factors. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, that appreciation for time, you know, I just, you, you never get it back. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with, uh, with my son, I was telling you earlier that, um, uh, we're, we're moving out of our, our one bedroom apartment. Uh, into a, a legitimate house, which is, which is great. And so for, you know, over a year, we, you know, had our son in, in this one bedroom apartment, sleeping in the same room as me and my wife. Um, you know, the lack of sleep is a real thing and, and all that, but also just uh, my son sort of being trapped in this box, you know, and now with the house, getting to see him, with some space and just how that changes things completely. Like his, his demeanor, he's, uh, he's walking better now. He's like exploring. And, um, yeah. And then I look back and it's sort of like, man, where the hell did this year go? It's, uh, it's, it's in, uh, it's insane. Um, Oh, one, one last thing that I, I want to talk to you about because I, uh, it's, it's, it's funny. We, we, we come from a very wholesome, uh, discussion and and now I want to talk about, uh, uh, teenagers having knife fights and how that was the norm, <laughs> uh, according, according to some people. Uh, so, you know, recently, uh, you know, every, I think everyone has seen, uh, seen the video. Yeah. Uh, teenagers are having a big brawl in the street. One teen has a knife, mm-hmm. go, attempts to stab another teen, and a police officer uh, puts, you know, shoots that, that, that person with the knife that, uh, yeah. and that that girl dies, you know, and, uh, horrible video. I, I hate watching videos like that. It's, it's truly disgusting. And I was expecting to get, to see more reactions of, man, this is, this is really terrible. How awful, how awful that must be. But rather, uh, one of, I think the, the most popular tweets I saw about it was something along the lines of, Hey, kids have been having knife fights for eons. Yeah and blah 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 we don't need like a white police officer to and and i i i, I was i was like this this is this is next level i'm like how did yeah. you like we got here really uh really quickly what um what, what was your take on this whole thing yeah i, I was you know 
reading the same thing, had the same reaction you did, my head in my hands, I cannot believe what I'm, what I'm seeing. And then I, I thought about it, and it, you know, it's kind of predictable in a way. The conversation from the very beginning, whether we go back to um, Michael Brown or, or back to the Trayvon Martin case, which is what I think uh, gave birth to the BLM, has never been about facts. It's never been about data. It's never been about what actually happens. If, if people were actually concerned about what actually happens, the first thing you do is you'd look at the data. If, the, you know, if there are racist police officers doing racist things, I wanna know about it. I think everybody wants to know about it. Americans wanna know. Uh, nobody's okay with that. And the first thing that we would have to do to figure that out is we'd have to look at the data, not just part of the data, but all of the data. And that's the one thing that does not happen. And so of course, you know, all the networks care about, all CNN cares about, all BLM cares about is the race of the officer. It's not about the victims. It's not about anybody else. It's about the race of the officer. And so as soon as you find out that that officer's white, knee jerk reactions are, of course it's murder. How else could, you know, he gets out of the car and 20 seconds later, there's a dead young girl and it's murder. Uh, thank God that there was a body cam because from the other cameras, I, I couldn't necessarily see the knife from the wider view. But with his body cam, it's obvious that she has a big knife. She's about to plunge in the other girl's stomach. And so then, you know, are, am I expecting these, these same people to then back up and go, oh, well, in hindsight, actually, this may have been, no, now they have to double down. So what else can you say? Kids have always been knife fighting. Like, that's just, that becomes what you have to say. So I feel for the the girl's family i feel for the officer and the officer's family he's going to have to live with that for the rest of his life i i think that was if ever there was a righteous shoot it was that he had no other option you know he was in a position where you couldn't holster your gun and go for anything else that other girl was about literally had a knife going towards her right so he did what he had to do and thankfully he's a good shot and nobody else got shot except for the aggressor and uh yeah and then you know what people who who don't know anything about violence, which is a lot of people in the United States and a lot of politicians don't understand is how dangerous knives are. Right. People have in their mind that there might be some kind of why couldn't he take the knife away from her or have some sort of training and they just have no literally have no idea, you know, how how deadly knives can be. Yeah. And, and I think a, a number of people shared um, uh, another article where uh, a 13 year old was like was stabbed to death by another 13 year old. And uh, I, I don't know if it's the same city or, or, or a different city. Um, but I, I guess, you know, bringing this around to, you know, fatherhood and parenting, I, I didn't grow up where knife fights were, were the norm. You know, this, this isn't, you know, rebel without a cause where switchblades are, are the norm or West side story and all that. I'd be friggin' right. horrified if I found out that my kids were taking part in these, I think it's, it says quite a bit though, you know, the times that we're living in, like you said, like so few people actually know about violence um, where it's almost like, okay, that's a good thing. But then when you get takes like that, Mm -hmm. it's like, well, that's the, I guess that's the downside of of having that ignorance. It is. It's the downside of having it. People will say things like, why doesn't he shoot him in the leg? You know, this kind of shooter in the leg. People don't understand about guns. People don't understand about knives. So there's a there's a process of education that has to go there, and it's certainly not helped when you have people who should know better, like President Biden, telling talking about shooting people in the legs, and and you you know then it just creates a whole unnecessary conversation. We have to explain to people why you know that's not a good idea and why that won't work. But also, just like you said, going back to to parenthood, the first thing everybody thinks about is the police officer the police officer was doing his job he was doing what he's supposed to do he was there because he was supposed to be there and they asked him to be there and he did what he had to do and he'll have to live with that for the rest of his life unfortunately but thankfully he was there but instead of thinking about the the police officer and the first thing everybody wants to do is jump on the police officer where the hell are the parents where's this girl's dad yeah why is your daughter out in a knife fight in the front yard right now you think that might uh, inspire a little self-reflection but if it doesn't then i don't really think there's any hope for any of this to getting changed because the net result of what's going to happen now is police officers are going to be slower to respond to situations like that they're going to be more tentative to take shots like that there's going to be less proactive policing that's what's going on right now 
And, and what's going to happen is there's going to be thousands more people killed in the United States than would otherwise be killed. We can already see it this year, thousands. You can see what's going on in places like Chicago, where somebody just walked into McDonald's and just opened fire and killed, killed a little child in there. That doesn't even make the news because it's so common. And that is the, I think that's what people don't realize uh, uh, when you lie about an issue like this, when you lie about what's going on with police officers in the United States, when you don't have a serious conversation about the data, the consequences are a lot of dead bodies. That's what's going to happen in this country. And it's inevitable. It's too late to, to fix it. You know, if we all of a sudden had a change of heart here in Portland, it would still take a couple of years for us to, to get the police department back up to staff of what it's going to be. So in the meantime, over this next year or two years or however long, there's going to be a lot more kids and people dead than would otherwise have to be dead. Well, shit. <laughs> that's, a, that's a bummer note to end the, end the conversation on, but that's, that's just unfortunately the reality of it. Yeah. Well, Matt Thornton, uh, thank you so much, man, for, for spending time with me, um, chatting uh, about, you know, all these, uh, all these subjects. Uh, once again, uh, Straight Blast Jim, please check it out. And I hear you have a book that you're working on. Too. Yes, just just finished it. I have a publisher. Um, I'll be announcing that. Um, and I'll definitely let you know as, as soon as I get any dates on that. That's awesome, man. Hey, guys, thank you so much for watching. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to support the show, please head over to theluperez.locals.com and go ahead and support my sponsors. Black Organic Cold Brew, head over to www.blvckbrew.com and use the promo code LU for free shipping. And if you head over to Paloma Verde, www.palomaverdestore.com and use the promo code LU, you'll get 25% off purchases over $75. And if you sign up for email, you'll get an extra 10% off. All right, later.